Hello? Yeah, it's um it's still loading the <laughs> the video recorder. It's All right. it, it's gonna start. By the time this computer catches up, it's generally about seven or eight seconds in. Mm-hmm. Okay, there we go. Your screen is still frozen. Ah. But it will unlock in just a second as soon as this computer finishes rolling stuff in and out. On really old dogs like this, you can see how poorly the new software is written. <laughs> but on a fast computer, all of that extra time and doing things twice and three times, uh, people don't notice. They've got all the hardware. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't know how old this computer is. But I got it about five years ago from a guy who bought it used. I think it's it's quite old because I remember my first laptop, and that was in maybe 2008, I got it, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no, maybe like 2006 or something, and that had around two gigs of RAM. So... We're looking maybe 10-year-old hardware here. Mm. But a new one's on order, so we'll have something useful soon enough. Meanwhile, now it says we've been into this video for two minutes, so at least we've got it going. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. So let's go back to what we were talking about then. You were saying that uh, feeling good in your practice and that sometimes when you really feel good, then you stop practicing because you think you kind of arrive stuff and somewhere and then the old stuff comes back. After doing that a couple of times, we begin to understand, oh, no, it's not a good idea to quit the practice, that we need to keep going at it because if we let off of it, it will revert back to the old ways. Yep. Eventually, now that won't happen so often. But in uh, in the beginning, as soon as we quit, it comes right back. Now, when I quit, I still I still have a lot of PT and suka. It doesn't really it may it may get a bit milder, but it doesn't really go away. I don't feel bad at all. Um, I think over the last few days. The worst it's been is, the lowest point it's been is kind of the human state, <laughs> they call it. Mm -hmm. um, so, it's, um, I mean, it's not bad. It's not like, oh, I'm beating myself up, which is what I used to do. Um, uh, but I do notice that when it's good and I automatically slack off, I find myself thinking about things like, Oh, I'm such a good meditator now. I can show off to people how good I am. Um, and thoughts like those. And then I catch those thoughts and I come back to it. Mm -hmm. That's not unusual, by the way. Um, 
there's a teacher by the name of Gil Fonsdale who says that he was in Japan a long time uh, practicing meditation. And when he got to Thailand, he thought to himself that, oh, they're going to be really impressed with how good I can sit. And the abbot of that temple, I don't know if he could read minds or what, but he took Gil and put him in the back of the watt for three months. <laughs> so nobody could see how he was <laughs> I guess, in fact, the teacher did Gil an enormous favor in the sense of maybe now he's ready to go into deep seclusion if he's been practicing that long. But meanwhile, that's actually a common thought that meditators have of bragging rights. One of the bragging mm-hmm. rights then will be how long I've been a meditator. Yeah. Oh, I've been a meditator for 35 years. I must know something. Um, and that this is just normal mind that's that's the uh, um, in fact this these bragging rights that we're talking about uh, is directly uh, attributable uh, attributed right back to the self-preservation The instinct of self-preservation in the sense of if we feel superior to other people in any way or another, then that gives us a feeling of security. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Yeah. But it's not real security. We're safe, okay. But it's a whole lot more difficult to take the direct approach of the Buddha, and that is is to recognize that we can, in fact, feel safe, and in fact, we are safe, whether I compete with that guy or not over who's the best meditator. That, in fact, it doesn't even matter who's the best meditator because it's all a matter of opinion anyway, and I'm not going to be getting him to convince me of anything, and I'm not going to get him to be convinced of anything I have to say. But that's And that, in fact, is what arguments are all about. Every argument is over this conceit of I am... And I'm not a winner yet, but I want to be, and that's why I'm arguing with you, so I can prove to myself that I am the winner. Where, in fact, we don't need that competition, and in fact, the competition itself doesn't prove anything, other than the fact that we're still competitive. (laughs) It's just verbal fighting. Exactly. And so now we can come back down to the level of, wait a minute, real success is being friends with people rather than competing with them. Yeah. Because if you're friends with someone, then we both win. Everybody's happy. If we're competing with each other, at best, it's either going to be, and it generally is a draw, nobody's convinced of anything. Yep. And then what satisfaction is that? If I can't get him to admit to me that I'm right and he's wrong, what's the point of arguing? (laughs) (laughs) And then when we recognize, well, if that's the point of arguing, then that means that there are no points to arguing. Exactly. It's so silly. Well, it's part of our instinctual nature. Yeah. 
We're instinctually like that. It's it's really that deeply buried. It goes not just back to our instincts of old humans a thousand, a million years ago. This instinct that we're talking about here goes back to the mammals. It goes all the way back to the fish. Fish compete with each other. Birds will sexually dance. They build nests. They compete with each other. The females go around looking at which nest is better. And so birds compete with each other. Isn't that amazing? That's just, wow, that's so deeply buried. Mm. That's why it's one of the lost birds, It does have a uh, self-preservation instinct built into it, especially the instinct of procreation. Mm. That who I am is who I produce is part of that deep, buried instinct and and it's more strong in our culture for women than it is for men but that's mm-hmm. an instinct that we have that's part of the net we wouldn't even need a nesting instinct if we didn't have that ownership or procreation or owning and trying to create and build and grow that instinct is so strong with us mm. and so when we see that um Combined then with the territorial instinct, humans have gotten to the point that where my real territory is, is what's in my own mind. Therefore, if somebody comes to me with a new idea, that's an invasion of my territory. Yeah, ideas, beliefs. So we have ideas or our views as territory. The Buddha points this out. That this is one of the four modes of clinging, uh, is what clinging to views. And so when the Buddha talks about it as clinging to views, we can trace that back to the territorial instinct because we have our views as our territory. Mm. And that clinging to views is what causes all conflict because two people clinging to views, they just happen to not be clinging to the same views. Mm. And they'll make sure that they can find a view or two that they don't mutually cling to so that they can mutually fight about it. Yeah. That's how it always ends up. Right, exactly. But you can now see, but the real win is, let's not compete. The real win is, is that it doesn't matter if we have different ideas, even different ideas about how to practice or teach meditation. We can still be friends. Yeah. So that's an important point. This is why the Buddha talks about friendship as, and there's a sutta. By the way, the name of the sutta is Half, Half Sutta. You can actually type that into Google, half sutta, and it'll pop this uh, uh, sutta right up. And then it is where um, the background is, is that... uh, 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 SN 45.2. And uh, so Ananda goes to the Buddha uh, with something that he had gotten from Sariputta, I think the commentary goes, because Sariputta was actually uh, Ananda's teacher. Right. And so he comes to the Buddha because he's actually Ananda is the, uh, the attendant of the Buddha. That's how it was set up. 
that when, when Ananda came to become a monk, before he became a monk, he requested three things from the Buddha, and the number one was that the Buddha could never send him away. Oh. That uh, the Ananda had the, the capability of being in the presence of the Buddha any time he wanted to, and the Buddha could not send him off. Why did he ask for that? Um... You have two, actually Ananda was uh, a physical cousin, but he uh, actually yes, not you said, half-brother. Yeah. He was physically the half-brother, but they were raised together. Mm. And that uh, for many years, while Buddha was out in the woods, Ananda was running the kingdom. Right. But he retired for that and spent the last 25 years of the Buddha's life as the attendant of the Buddha, and that was the qualification that Ananda had. But Ananda did so many things. He was very egalitarian. But this is the point then that Ananda comes to the Buddha and he asks him this question. He says, Sariputta says that friendship is half of the Dhamma. Well, I know exactly where Sariputta is coming from. It's because he knows these higher fetters. He knows about this conceit, about this... Um, uh, uh, deeply buried instinct for us to be in competition with uh, each other. But when we add the other side of the coin, which is the Brahma Viharas, including Metta, Karuna, Mudita, mm. then that means now we've got the whole package. And so the Buddha's answer to Ananda is no, friendship is not half the Dhamma. Friendship is the entire Dhamma. Now, what does that mean? That means that we're not going to kill instincts. We're going to learn to control them, make pets out of them, and be friends with them. Oh, we see. become friends with our thoughts. We become friends with our feelings. We become friends with our environment. So we're friendly on the inside, and once we get friendly going on the inside, then we can start working on friendly on the outside, because everything we're not friendly with on the outside is due to something unfriendly on the inside anyway. I've noticed that I've been able to be friendly with my thoughts um, over, the, over the last few days, um, as in... I. They haven't really annoyed me, or I haven't, I haven't done the kind of negative reinforcement that I used to do. Right, become friendly with your own self, become friendly with your own mind is such a yeah. valuable tool. This is, in fact, what we can say is that the wake-up of sati, to fully wake up means to fully wake up that I can be friends with myself. I don't have to be hindered mm. right now. I do not have to be in a state of mental hindrance. That that's, in fact, one of the ways of beating myself up, competing, desiring things I don't have, trying to uh, um, fix the past by planning for the future. All of those kind of hindrances are not actually being friends with ourselves. It's basically like saying, oh, there's this old problem you've got to solve, and when you do, then we can be friends. But until then, nah. Mm. <laughs> I still do a lot of future thinking, uh -huh. but, but now it's about how good the future will be. Well, we don't know. 
Exactly. Whatever you think about the future now ain't going to happen. Something else is bound to happen. Something, uh, some cause is going to worm its way in there that you didn't plan in advance on. And the effect yeah. is going to wind up being different. Yeah, it's true. But when we begin to look and see things clearly, we can see that things go in cycles. Hence the whole, whole idea of deja vu, or wow, we've been here before. We've seen this, been there, done that. Yeah. But really, that's not the same thing as, as planning. That's just recognizing the cycles. That there are cycles. Things keep repeating themselves and going over and over again. It's like saying history doesn't repeat itself. Yes, it does. The only thing that's different is the uh, uh, which instruments are playing that history over and over again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I've what rhythm and what beat they're using, you know. Sometimes it's a... Uh, um, uh, two-thirds cassinets, and sometimes it's all tuba. <laughs> but it's still the same old, same old, over and over and over again. This The Buddha refers to this, and in Buddhism we talk about that as samsara. The samsara is just things keep happening over and over and over again, and the reason they do is because of the habit patterns of the mind. And so we do the same things over and over again. Well, if we can, with wisdom, begin to change our, and not just begin to, but we really do change the habits. Now we've got a new kind of history going that we're not bound to keep that old history system. Mm. That, 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 that old system or what we refer to as personality is not me. It's not who I am. That I am what I am in this particular moment on the way to some new person in the next. Yeah. It's always changing, never the right. same. Everything is always changing, and that is especially true with changing our feelings. People go from feeling good to feeling bad to feeling sometimes they're drunk, sometimes they're sleepy, sometimes they're wide awake, sometimes they're cheering for their team, sometimes they're down for their team. And everybody around them knows this individual goes through all of these changes and see his various personality features. The only person who can't see them is him himself. Mm. And so we yeah. get the idea that I'm the permanent person. I've been here all along. This is just me, who I am. Me. And that's not true at all. No, nope. You're proud. You're all over the place. <laughs> and you don't know it. Yeah. But as we begin to practice sati and begin to wake up, we can see this crowd marching around inside of our mind in the form of the hindrances. And we can say, wait a minute, I am not that thought. That's not mm -hmm. who I am. And so, yes, we do become very friendly with our thoughts, especially in the sense of allowing ourselves to have wholesome thoughts or those kind of thoughts that are, in fact, friendly. Mm. And then we also make sure that we avoid having unfriendly thoughts, which would be thoughts of competition or thoughts of uh, this is hard work or uh, mm -hmm. thoughts of, oh, no, I've screwed up again or any of those kind of thoughts. Not very friendly. 
And no. so it's kind of an important thing to realize that the real practice of Anapanasati is a set of skills to be learned and that it does take some effort to develop these skills. And that basically what we're talking about then, that there are skills that manifest themselves in four ways. One is that we begin to have better control over the breathing and the body. We, we wake up the body. We make it more of an, uh, an antenna rather than a lump. Yeah. Okay. And so that's a training. And that training then is, is that we begin to control the breath. That's how we train it. Mm-hmm. Through control. And not only that, but then the result is controlling of the breath. Once we learn to control the breathing, now we can begin to control the mind. In fact, we've already been controlling the mind because we've been remembering to control the breath. If we can't mm. remember to control the mind enough to control the breath, then we can't control the brain or the breath at all. But then there's a deeper level of the training of the mind, and that is, is to keep only wholesome thoughts, not just the sati of waking up, but to continue to wake up, to watch every thought, so that it's going to be a friendly, wholesome kind of thought that's going to keep us in this state of pleasure. So do we actively think wholesome thoughts, or do we just You talk yourself into feeling bad, you can talk yourself into feeling good. All right, yeah. As I know, I'm difficult for a lot of people to understand, but yes, there is a connection between our thoughts and our feelings. Yeah. Okay. And often the feeling comes immediately, even before the thought, when we see an event. Yeah. That in fact, real emotions don't come until after the... uh, Let's say that the woman was standing there with her husband and somebody came up and shot him. What is she? The first thing she's going to do is she's going to grasp gasp for air. <gasps> and then she'll scream or yeah. whatever. Oh, she's just gotten that information. But it's later, maybe after the police arrive or maybe at the funeral, is when she's gushing with grief. That first uh, initial reaction is not the grief that eventually takes over. Yeah. But it's rather a startle reaction that we have. Yeah. Okay. This is the point that I'm making is, is that begin to watch for your own startle reactions. Like thunder, or like a loud noise, somebody slams the door, some sudden noise may be loud or soft. The question is, how do you wake up to it? How do you respond to it? Do you jump physically? Do you react? In fact, the question is, do you react to it with your wisdom mind or do you respond to it with the primitive part of the mind? It depends. The wisdom part of the mind is not going to be startled by it. Mm. It's the reptilian part of the mind is going to have the startle reaction. So I've noticed sometimes with the startle, it's like there's the reptilian mind, which kind of, which has like a mini sort of freaking out. But Mm -hmm. then sometimes 
there's just there's just the um, the raw sort of startle sensation, but it just it comes and then it just there's nothing else after that. It's just a little it's like a little flick of adrenaline and then and then back to normal. Uh huh. Okay. Now generally that going back to normal though for the reptilian part of the brain are not just going back to normal, but to say for a long time it's been in normal, whatever normal is, is a small series of under the radar uh, events that the um, reptilian brain, uh, the uh, self-preservation instinct part, reacts to. Tiny little subtle things that build up into fear. This Did you say that again? Little tiny events that happen that get the attention of the self-preservation instinct is very much like a startle reaction, except that it's quite small. It's microscopic, but it can lead if it happens on a regular basis, once or twice a second or five times a second, or once every five seconds, it can begin to build up adrenaline in the body that we experience as fear, anxiety, trepidation, all because of these tiny little false positives that are going off in the reptilian brain. Okay. And so part of our job is then to begin to wake up to that. Now, some students of meditation call these background thoughts. Really, the only reason that they're in the background is because we're not paying close attention to them. In fact, we never were paying any attention to them. Now that we've gotten some sati going, not enough, but some sati going, there's a, that we've been, even though I can watch the breath, there's all of this dialogue, all of this crap going on back there. Right? Yeah. That's the part that we're wanting to learn to control. Yep. Because it's not background. It's just there, and then we breathe, and then it's there again, and then we breathe, and then it's there again, and then we breathe, and we're going back and forth between what are we conscious of, and we're telling ourselves a lie, I'm watching the breath, and there are background thoughts. Mm. When the reality is, it's just you're kind of watching both of them. Back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, it's true. It's kind of like dreamy thoughts. They're losing substance. That's exactly right. That's yeah. why they're in the background. They don't have the strength or the power that uh, that ordinary thought has because you're taking so much of their time and energy away from them by going back to the breath. Yeah. So they begin to get ephemeral. It's, it's almost like uh, a video signal that uh, from the satellite when it's raining. Yeah. You no know, rain will disturb a satellite signal. Okay, so that's the kind of interference that we're putting in there. Yeah. Good interference, okay? And so now we begin to bring those thoughts and start looking at them so that you can, in fact, make these thoughts wholesome. So that even the background thoughts say, yeah, this is nice. What yeah. a nice breath. And in fact, the background noise could, in fact, be directed towards the meditation itself to begin to think about what we're doing right now 
rather than letting that stuff go somewhere else and be somewhere else at another time and another place. Let's bring all of that background stuff right here. Let's bring the whole show in. I think I see what you're saying. This it's kind is of that like... higher level of mindfulness, that real waking up can take all of these background thoughts and make them part of the package of what we're being actually doing. We're actually learning, not simultaneously, but in succession one after another, uh, learning how to control the breath, learning how to control the thoughts, learning how to control the feelings, learning how to control the, uh, the con not just the content of the mind, but the kind of way that the mind is functioning. And we can do that again with the breathing. Why? If we're breathing shallowly and not looking very closely, then the mind is not really fit for work. Mm. But if we're deep breathing and we're paying close attention, then the mind is really fit for work. So it's like using the sort of, I suppose, the energy of those background thoughts, but, but using them for your actual meditation. Yes. Because you're kind of, you're feeding them while they're happening, but instead you could feed your meditation. Yes. Put them into service. Yeah. Which means begin to control even at that level. So this is a new, that's why we call it a skill. You're beginning to wake up that, oh, this is something that can be done. Yeah. If you tell a brand new meditator this, he doesn't know what you're talking about. But you've been practicing now. Yeah, I, I, um, yeah, yeah, it's like I don't feel like I can't do it, which is how I would have felt before. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I can do it just yet, but I don't feel like I can't do it. Right, and you know that it's worthwhile trying. Practicing, yeah. but you've yeah. already seen these background thoughts. And not only that, but when you're on your head like this and smiling, I get the, I get that lion. I can see it. Yeah. You're not confused. You're not knitting your brow. Yeah. It feels That's good. That's why I like the videos, because I can see what people are doing as they respond to what I'm saying. Is, yeah. yeah, I think you're ready for this. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to trying it out. Even... Um, well, it was only Monday, so the start of the week yesterday. Um, but I didn't really get stressed at work um, uh, doing everything that I did. I didn't really, it was great. Well, I think that this is possibly a good time for us to finish off. I think that this has been a short one, but a very intent, good point. Yeah. Especially ending with the idea with we can begin to control these thoughts that we used to think were just background. That in fact, they're not background. They're thoughts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there is no background. There's just what are you looking at right now? <laughs> yeah, there is no background, isn't it? Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> well, let's go practice like this. Yeah. And bring those thoughts out 
to where you can begin to control them, where you can begin to say things like, that's a deep breath. Wow, I like that. Or I can say something like, oh, I see those thumbs twiddling. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, I see that leg shaking. And everything then has that quality of friendship. Yeah. Yeah, that will be that will be great actually because it's like when you when you don't have that friendship, when you have sort of when you when it makes you feel bad, then you then it brings you back down. Mm-hmm. But the friendship, it doesn't, it kind of it picks you up even more. Yes. This is this is really that aspect in the kind of a uh, uh, talking about it around and around deeply would be step 10 of Anapanasati, the gladdening the mind. This is what we're doing. This is gladdening the mind. We're beginning yeah. to pull it out of that old place that it was, paying attention to and talking about this present moment and becoming friends with these internal processes. That's step 10, gladdening the mind. Let's get this guy up, you know, let's bring a smile on the face of the mind. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. It's it's uh yeah, it's really awesome. All right. Well, you go practice that and we'll talk again about it. Sounds good. Excellent. All right. I'm glad to see you're making so much progress. I like it when the students come in and say, "Yeah, I got that stuff is going." Yeah, it feels great. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Tamarato. See you soon. See you soon. <laughs>